Pastor Peter, um, or Pastor Mark, asked me what my theme was for these meetings. And these meetings, some of you, also include a meeting uh, for ministers that I'm doing, uh, for Pastor Steve, and then for Pastor Keith Kerber, who'll be coming down. But my theme is uh, uh, from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. Uh, chapter 1, rather, verse 2, or is it 2-2? Two, two? I think it's 2-2. Two, two. 1 Corinthians 2-2. Two, two. Uh, Paul said this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that, that is my theme for these meetings, which officially started yesterday morning at Family Christian Center, and then we continued last night um, here at Whitefields Church. And uh, it is going to be the theme of what I'm sharing with you tonight, as well as what uh, I will be sharing with the ministers um, tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, and also Wednesday morning. Uh, Pastor Peter shared something the other day, last night. Um, uh, he, uh, first of all, let, let me just say this. Sunday morning, I ministered on your life as a lesson in redemption. And I'm sure if you're interested in getting that message, Pastor Peter can make that available to you. Pastor Mark said these meetings, these, these services here are available by CD or on podcast. And last night, the, my message was chosen based upon uh, Ephesians chapter 1, 3, and 4. And, and uh, is it 2 Timothy 1, 9, uh, that you've been chosen before the foundation of the world, not according to your works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given you in Christ Jesus before the world began. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, actually, uh, he chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. And so I recommend that you get those messages. Uh, there's no income to me from those messages. I don't sell my messages. My messages are free online when I put them online. So I'm very glad they're on podcast for you. But I recommend that to you. Um, this area that I'm going to be sharing with you has been a major study of my life the last seven years, uh, the last six years. Um, as I was working on a, a, a master's degree and, and a doctoral degree. And, and I want to share with you things that I'm sharing with, uh, especially with pastors. And I know you're not all pastors. Most of you are not pastors. But uh, I sh share this with pastors in various countries around the world. Um, uh, that is my major focus on helping them learn to read and preach the Word of God uh, uh, and to preach Christ from all of Scripture. But tonight, I want to I lay a foundation for some things I'm going to share the next two mornings, but I want to present this in a way that is useful to non-preachers as well, just Christians, people who are reading the Bible or want to read the Bible or get more out of the Bible. And it starts, we're going to start in Luke chapter 24. This is a passage that most of you are familiar with. Uh, we're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. But prior to that in this chapter, we, we have uh, the account of how the women went to the uh, tomb, and they found it empty. Uh, they saw on a, uh, had a, uh, an appearance of two angels uh, who asked them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Uh, the angels told these women, uh, he's not here. Jesus is not here. He has risen. And uh, 
So they ran from the tomb and they went and told the 11 and, and uh, uh, all the rest what, what they had seen. And uh, that was Mary Magdalene, Johanna, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and other women that were there who told these things to the apostles. And uh, then Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooped in, looked in, and John was with him. We know from another account in the Gospel of John, I think, or no, Mark's Gospel, actually, that, that Mark went with him too. Actually, no, it was John's Gospel. Peter and John went to the tomb. But here, Peter, it says Peter looked in the tomb, uh, looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and so on and so forth. He went home marveling at what had happened. So they're confused. Uh, the, they don't understand what's going on. They haven't grown up with the New Testament. They haven't grown up in Sunday school. They don't know what to expect. All they know is, as they're about to explain to Jesus, that the one they thought that was going to deliver Israel ends up being uh, hung on a, and tortured and executed on a Roman cross. And it looks like the lights are out. Everything is, is over. So in verse 13, it says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Mary and I have been on the road to Emmaus. Now, they're not exactly sure. There were a few different Emmauses uh, over uh, the period of time, from the time of Christ until now. But the, the, the place where they think Emmaus is, it seems... Uh, the logical location. There, there is a road there, and Mary and I were in Israel a few years back. We were walking on that road with our tour guide, and it was very moving. It was a, it was a wonderful experience to be, to be there. And uh, so these two disciples are on the road, and while they're talking and discussing together in verse 15, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to Jesus, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in, in deed and word uh, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now uh, th the third day since these things happened. Moreover, Cleopas continued, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Uh, and Jesus said to them, or I'm sorry, some of these, uh, who, those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow, to slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now we'll skip a few verses here because uh, 
They invited Jesus to stay with them. He went to their home he, as he was breaking bread with them. He vanished before their eyes, and uh, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 36, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Uh, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Uh, verse 44, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I think if you have read this account, you probably have thought, as I have, uh, how I wish I had a recording of that conversation. Don't you wish you could have eavesdropped on it and, and uh, listened to what Jesus said? Uh, but there's something I heard a, a New Testament scholar say from the UK one day. He was talking about this chapter, and he said, you know, when we get to chapter 24 of Luke, we might wish that Luke had continued for another 20 or 30 chapters to tell us about that conversation. But he said many, many uh, scholars who have studied the, the Bible in depth believe that the way in which the writers of the New Testament quote from and refer to the Old Testament provides us a window into what Jesus said that day. When I heard that, the light came on. I realized, of course, that's what happened. What, what would we do if, if somebody says, you know, uh, I was walking down such and such a street and I was talking to this man and he began to open the Bible up for me and I invited him home for a sandwich and he disappeared before my eyes. And, you know, you find out this is Jesus. Now, this isn't happening these days, by the way, but this, is, this happened between the, resur the, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ back to heaven. Well, what do you think the, the, the apostles did, the disciples of Jesus? They did just what we would do. They plied Cleopas and the other disciple with questions. There's no doubt about it. They would have grilled them. What did he tell you? What did he say to you? Tell us about that conversation. Absolutely, they would have done that. That was part of their culture anyway, to, to make a record of things. And then later, we see that Jesus then appears to the remainder of the disciples, and he continues this discussion. But it turns out as we look at this chapter more closely, we find out this is not the only time that Jesus talked like this. 
And it goes back to the very beginning of his ministry. We're going to share some scriptures with you about that. That Jesus was always referring to himself uh, as the theme of the entire Old Testament. But I mentioned that other uh, matter, just as an aside, it would be an interesting study if you were to look at the quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Book of Hebrews would be a great place to start and watch how the writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, quote from and refer to the Old Testament. And you get a window into this conversation on the road to Emmaus. But Jesus himself has told us in various places that uh, the Bible here is the Old Testament speaking about him. A couple things we need to note from this passage that, that's important uh, for tonight is that, uh, first of all, when Jesus gently rebuked uh, the, the Cleopas and his companion, he said, uh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Get that phrase, all that the prophets have spoken. It's very easy to read the Bible and to atomize it. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever seen an atomizer? It's a spray. It takes the water, breaks it into many droplets. And it's very easy to read the Bible that way, that the Bible becomes a book of 10,000 incidents, 10,000 seemingly unrelated uh, stories. And what, you know, why is this in the Bible? What, 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 what does this have to do with anything? And what Jesus is saying here is that this, this book is not atomized. There is a unifying narrative from Genesis through Revelation. There is a primary theme. And you've heard this if you've been a Christian any period of time, that context is king when we understand the Bible. Uh, Many scholars feel that, you know, you can look up the meaning of a word in a Greek dictionary, a Hebrew dictionary, a commentary, but the, but the primary way you determine the meaning of a word, a phrase, a passage is from its context. Normally, though, when we think about context, we think about the verse in which the word appears or the verses before and after the verse we're looking at. Or we might look as far as the chapter that we're reading, and we should, uh, the, the meaning of any particular passage or verse in a book of the Bible is also dependent upon the, the context of that whole book. What's the theme of the, the whole book? But there is a larger context that is often neglected, and that is the overall redemptive context of all of Scripture. Because the primary theme of the entire Bible is redemption. You put yourself in God's place. You have you have this uh, small rebel colony uh, in a galaxy far, far away, long, long ago. And uh, this, this little rebel colony in the universe is a tiny, tiny, tiny cosmic speck of dust in the vast universe. Uh, they, they tell us, astronomers tell us, that just across the Milky Way galaxy, if you were traveling at the speed of light, it would take about 120,000 years at the speed of light. 186,000 miles per second. That would take you around the Earth almost eight times every second. At that speed, it would take 120,000 years to cross our galaxy. And just about four years ago, astronomers discovered, I think previously they had guessed that there were about 400 billion galaxies in the known universe, and just about 
four years ago, in, in about October 2015, they discovered that they had been wrong. There were not about 400 billion. By the way, my numbers might be off plus or minus a trillion or a billion, but when you're talking about the universe, that is a fractional error, okay? But uh, they, these are pretty close. These are pretty close. They discovered there weren't 400 billion galaxies in the known universe. There was more like two trillion two trillion in the known universe. Now, the known universe, the observable universe, is the universe we can see. And they think there might be more beyond that, but we can't see it. And the average number of stars in these galaxies, in our galaxies, they guesstimate about maybe 400 billion stars. Our star, the sun, is a medium-sized star. It's not the largest. It's not the smallest. But the Earth would fit within our sun a million times. And they guesstimate there's about maybe 400 billion stars in our galaxy. But there's two trillion galaxies, and all of them have between 100 billion to maybe a trillion stars in them. And so you come back to planet Earth, and it is just a cosmic speck of dust. And on that planet are these tiny, tiny people with these tiny, tiny brains, but they're full-on rebellion. They are rebellious, they are wicked, they are dead in sin. Romans 5, Paul describes us. We were weak, we were enemies, we were, we were sinners, we were ungodly. And, and the definition of ungodly is the opposite of everything that God is. God is godly, and we were ungodly. We were the polar opposite of God. And God has a situation on planet Earth. Now, astronomers back in the early 1990s, because of something I think Carl Sagan said, which most, a lot of you probably don't remember Carl Sagan, but he had the TV show and said there's billions and billions of stars. And he thought, you know, that, that well, I won't go into what he thought. But they began for this program called uh, SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And the United States funded it millions of dollars until they gradually started getting the numbers and cranking the numbers. And what they had thought was a high probability of life on other planets uh, turned out to be a very, at first, a very a much smaller probability. And then it kept going down because the, because the number of factors that have to line up are, are incredible. And so it dropped from a high probability to a lower probability to a about zero probability into a negative probability. There's a negative probability that we should even be here talking like this today. It had to be, as Fred Hoyle said, Fred Hoyle is the, is the guy that came up with the Big Bang Theory. He's an atheist. And he says, and as, these, as these information's coming in, he said, you know, it seems like some kind of superior intelligence has monkeyed with the laws of physics. There's no way we should be here. And he said, my atheism has been greatly shaken. And, and this has happened to these scientists who see that, that there, this, there has to be a creator. But that's another story. Uh, the point is that, that, you know, they started looking for radio signals uh, that were not just random, because that would indicate there might be intelligence out there somewhere. And the ironic thing was is that all along there has been extraterrestrial. That just means off the earth. Extraterrestrial intelligence. And his name is Jehovah. <laughs> the <laughs> the, tri, the triune God. And the, the Bible tells us, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he didn't send radio waves. He came in person. Now, what do you think his message would be to this 
this rebel colony long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away from heaven, what do you think that message would be? It would be the most important thing that God could tell them. The most urgent thing he could tell a dead planet full of dead people, spiritually dead people, a dead race that is doomed to death and hell. He's, gonna, he's got a message, and it's an urgent message, and the message is, I forgive you. I am coming to save you. And that's why the deepest, the deepest theme of God's word is God's heart, God's message. I will save you. God saves sinners. Everything else is embellishment. Everything else is an elaboration of that theme. I forgive you. There was a, a novel written by Ernest Hemingway many years ago called The, Cap, uh, the Capital City, I think. I haven't read it, but uh, it took place in Spain, and there was a man there. He had a, a, a teenage son or young, young uh, adult son, and uh, his name was uh, Paco, uh, short for Francisco, right? Is that right, Pastor Peter? Paco. And that's a, is that a common Hispanic name? Yeah. So uh, they had a falling out, and Paco left home. His father, I guess, I'm assuming, I haven't read the novel, but I'm, from, from what I have read and understand, he's heartbroken, and he wants to find his son and can't find him. So he puts an ad in the, an advertisement in the newspaper, and he says, uh, he says, Paco, he says, uh, he said, all is forgiven. Come home. Meet me at the Hotel Montana at 12 noon on Tuesday under the clock. And so his father makes his way to the Hotel Montana at that time and place and so on. And he's shocked when he gets there. And, you know, there's a huge crowd of people there. The police have been called out to do crowd control. And there's about 800 young men, all named Paco, <laughs> who are looking for their father's forgiveness. My friends, that is the gospel pure and simple. That's the message that God would and did send to this planet. And that is the overriding theme of all the Bible. And if you just know that as you read the scripture, you will walk a line that goes neither to one extreme or the other. You will see that righteousness is completely by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And at the same time, you will see that God's highest purpose was not just to save us, but to sanctify us and to redeem us and ultimately to glorify us. We don't talk about the resurrection of the body as much as we should, but, you know, when, when we are resurrected, we're not going to flit around heaven as vapors. The Bible says we're waiting for there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and you will need your resurrected body. You will have a glorified physical body, and it won't be, uh, it'll be this body uh, transformed. So if you're not happy with your nose or your ears, don't worry, because it'll be glorious. You'll be glorious, okay? All right? Well, 
this is what Jesus is saying on the road to Emmaus. And, and uh, he says to them, oh, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. But have you read the prophets? And then later he says, this is what's written about me in the, in the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. Now, I want to I come back to that thought, but I, I need to take this apart a little bit. You understand that when he talks about Moses, when he says beginning with Moses, he's talking about the Pentateuch. He's talking about the books that Moses wrote, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, then when he says the prophets, he, he, that, that phrase, Moses and the prophets, is simply a shorthand way of referring to the entire Old Testament. Just as we refer to the 39 books of the Old Testament as the Old Testament, the Jews had a shorthand way of referring to what we call the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, they didn't call it the Old Testament because it wasn't the Old Testament. It was the only Testament that they had, and the New Testament hadn't been written. But in the Jewish Bible, the Jewish Bible is divided into three, into three parts. And it was divided into Moses, uh, the, the law, the, the prophets, and the Psalms. I've already told you what, the, uh, what, what, what you know, Moses uh, represents the law, represents the Pentateuch. Uh, the Psalms are uh, the first book in a division of the Jewish Bible called the Writings. So they divided their Bible into the Pentateuch, the law, and the prophets, and, and the Psalms. The Psalms, again, is just a shorthand name for that whole division of, of their Bible. And under that heading of the writings, they put Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Ruth, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, and surprisingly, Daniel, and Lamentations. And then under the prophets, they had the former prophets, and again, this might surprise you, that included Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then the, the, the latter prophets, which would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So this is how they referred to the entire Old Testament. And so when Jesus is referring to uh, the, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, he's simply talking about all of the Old Testament. But in, including uh, the Psalms, for example, did you know? Did you know that the Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament? And that it is the book that Jesus quoted more than any other. But again, I, I might ask you, when Jesus said, uh, you, know, uh, you know, don't you know that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That, haven't you read the prophets? You might ask yourself, well, where does it say that in the prophets? And then later, when, when Jesus tells them, he says, uh, these are words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, uh, again, the law of prophets of Moses, uh, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. I'm sorry, I'm talking so fast. I have a lot to get in. I want to get it out. He said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Where is it written in the, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, that Christ should suffer and on the third day, rise from the dead. You know, one of the things I like to do with my students is get them to think. Because, they, you know, it's just so easy to get so spiritual. You just check your, your brain at the cloakroom and just think it's all, all spiritual. But uh, it's good to ask questions of the Bible, isn't it? It's good to read it and ask questions, ask lots of questions. Yes, 
The Old Testament does talk about how Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, but it's not always immediately apparent. I think we might all think about Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. You know, he was wounded for our transgressions and, and, and uh, you know, he bore our, our pains and sorrows and sicknesses and he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. You know, we know we know now in the 21st century that that is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are many other places in the Old Testament where you would be surprised that it is a reference. It is speaking of the Lord Jesus. There are, yes, there are some messianic psalms and there are some very clear references, but largely First of all, you'll never see the name of, of Jesus referring to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You see his Jewish name, Joshua, as referring to the son of Nun, uh, the disciple of Moses. But, uh, and, and you see the, the, maybe you see the word Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for Christ. But you don't see explicit references to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And you don't see always, in, in most of the scriptures, explicit references to his suffering and, and, and sorrow. But it's there if we learn how to read that. And the other thing I want to say is that notice how Jesus underscores his summary of what the scriptures say about him. He says it was written that the Christ should suffer. It's, it's interesting how he underscores that. Of all the things he could say about himself and his ministry, he says the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead. And that, as a result of that, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So uh, that chapter uh, in Luke, Luke 24, about the road to Emmaus uh, just really has captured me. I, I am riveted with that thought. And, and, and I realize that in that chapter, the Lord Jesus gave us the the golden interpretive key for the whole Bible, and that is it's all about him. And if we're going to preach the gospel, that's why Paul said, I want to know nothing but Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I, I, I want to preach Christ. Now, um, that's why I mentioned this on Sunday morning. I never finished my thought. Um, about it. I, about 15 years ago, I started to just look at my own preaching, and this is something that I think Paul did in the book of Galatians. He said he went up to Jerusalem to make sure he hadn't run in vain. He wasn't above having others check out his message and examine it and look at it. And I began to look at my own preaching. And uh, about 15 years ago, I just uh, kind of get out of the car, walk around, kick the tires, and look at it objectively. And I had to say, and I did say to the Lord, I said, I don't see my sermons in the Bible. I mean, let me clarify something. The Bible has principles. It has precepts. It has steps. There's steps. Uh, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Uh, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be given you. Th those are steps. If you want to break that down, those are steps. Those are principles and so on and so forth. But, but that's first and foremost not our message. First and foremost, our message is Christ and him crucified. And listen, listen carefully. Everything else flows from that. Everything else is an implication 
of that truth. Remember the major message to the rebel outpost? That's the main message. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. And everything else flows from that. We'll talk about that a little bit more, I hope. We have time to do that. But I realized that first and foremost, I was preaching steps. I'm embarrassed to tell you that I could go a whole sermon and not even mention Jesus. I was preaching, you know, four steps here, three steps here, 15 steps, five steps to this, and the greater life of prayer, the greater life of success, how to be a this and how to be a that. And I had steps, and I, I, I you know, I wasn't preaching the Savior. I was preaching steps. I wasn't preaching the Redeemer. I was preaching rules. I, was, I wasn't preaching. I was preaching precepts, not the person of Christ. And that started a journey for me that has taken me up into this day where I began to think, well, Lord, how on earth? I'd read about how Paul said, we preach Christ. And Philip went down to Samaria. And you know what his sermon to topic was? He preached Christ. And, and honestly, uh, chalk it up to an analytical head, but I just couldn't figure that out. I thought, how, how on earth do you do that for 52 minutes? Once you say the Lord's name, now what? How do you continue on for 52 minutes to preach Christ, let alone 52 Sundays a year? I just, I was baffled. And I would read in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul said, I, you know, the gospel that I received, that I shared with you, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, you know, died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and on the third day rose again according to the scriptures. When I saw that, now you, ha you have to understand the, the context. It, back when we did cassette tapes, you know, you'd put together tape albums and I, probably this is still true. I... But, I mean, the thing was to come up with a very clever title. Of course, a message that no one had ever thought of before. Uh-huh, uh-huh, right. And, and, you know, a really cool artwork on the album, and this is going to be a clever title, a catchy title, something no one said, and, and, you know, and it was kind of a thing, kind of an unspoken, I'm not, I don't want to put the, the brethren down, I can put myself down, but um, there's a kind of a competition. Who's got the, the best title and all that stuff? And when I saw that in 1 Corinthians 15, I thought, Paul, we already know that. Jesus died, buried, wrote. Paul, no one's going to buy that book. No one's going to buy that tape series. We already know that. But with my lightning fast mind, after a while, I thought, you know, maybe, just maybe, Paul knows something I don't. Maybe he can drill down on that way, way deeper than I can. Maybe there's a lot more to that, and there is. In fact, everything Paul taught, because he said, I, I only want to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. I preach Christ and Christ crucified. I preach the word of the cross, which is the power of God. Preach Christ uh, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the gospel is the word of the cross, which is the power of God. Why? Why is all this power generating from the cross? What does that mean? Are those just words? Are those just nice words? I'm not against jewelry. I, I got my wife a nice cross. But is it just jewelry? What, what is this? And, and what about all those messages that, 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 that I had with, 
all these three steps, seven steps, six steps, you know, all this stuff. There was truth in it. Don't get me wrong. And, and a lot of those things work. But as I say to my students, what is the gospel? Do you know? What exactly is the gospel? We throw that word around like, like we know, but what is it? Do you really know? What does it mean to preach Christ? And why is it the power of God unto salvation? I mean, that's what we're here for, right? Is to be saved and changed and transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Yeah. And so, uh, this is what Paul preached. This was Philip's sermon. I want to read you something that Charles Spurgeon said. Um, Charles Spurgeon is one of the greatest preachers that has ever been. He's called the Prince of Preachers. And there's a book written, I, I don't know if he wrote it, called The Soul Winner. This is what Spurgeon said. He's a, a phenomenal preacher. And, and by the way, if you ever get to read his biography, you'll find out that he suffered greatly. He had great bouts of depression. He, every time he walked into the pulpit, he would pray, Oh God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And I forget there was a significant percentage of time when he could not go into the pulpit because he struggled so much with, with that depression. Now, I'm not, at, I'm not glorifying that and saying, well, let's all get depressed and be like Charles Spurgeon. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that let's not put anybody on a pedestal. And Spurgeon knew his, he, was, he was just a vessel before God. But God used him mightily. He said this, I believe that those sermons which are fullest of Christ are the most likely to be blessed in the conversion of the hearers. Let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, crammed full of the gospel. As for myself, brethren, I cannot preach anything else but Christ and his cross, for I know nothing else. And long ago, like the Apostle Paul, I determined not to know anything else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, people have often asked me, what is the secret of your success? I always answer, he said, that I have no secret but this, that I have preached the gospel. Not about the gospel, but the gospel. The full, free Glorious gospel of the living Christ, who is the incarnation of the good news. Preach Jesus Christ, Spurgeon said. Preach Jesus Christ, brethren, always and everywhere. And every time you preach, be sure to have much of Jesus Christ in the sermon. He had this rebuke for one man. He said, no Christ in your sermon, sir. Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. What did he think of a sermon that did not preach Christ? He humorously replied that his reaction was the same as Mary Magdalene's at the empty tomb. He said, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. He told this story about an old minister who heard a sermon by a young man, and when he was asked by the young preacher, what he asked Spurgeon what he thought of the sermon. The old minister was slow to answer, but at last he said, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see Christ in the text. 
Oh, said the old minister, don't you know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London? Yes, said the young man. Ah, said the old minister. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures, which is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? And then preach a sermon running along the road towards him. And, and said he, the old minister said, I have never yet found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that has not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master for the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. Let me read you some, some scriptures here. As early as John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, John 5.39, Jesus is speaking to the Jews. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. John 5.46, for if you believed Moses, he's talking about the Pentateuch, the law, you would believe me for he wrote of me. Acts 26, verse 22 to 23, this is what Paul said. To this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now when Paul said, talked about Christ died, remember, he died according to the scriptures and was buried and raised according to the scriptures. The only scriptures he had were Old Testament scriptures. So he's preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. And the question that, I, a hard question, I've, I, I've had to ask myself. That's why I said, well, Lord, do, do, my, do my sermons sound like your sermons? Do they, do they sound like the sermons of the apostles? Paul was not above asking that question. I know people get very defensive about these things. I, I am always happy to find out the truth as early as possible on things like this. I don't like it. I don't like finding out that my sermons are not as perfect as I thought they were. But I tell you, I'd rather find it out here on earth than when I go to heaven. And, uh, and, 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 and I think if the great apostle Paul had to check up on his preaching, maybe we all need to. I mean, maybe we have blind spots. Is that possible? You know, if you're married, you know you have blind spots because your wife helps you see them all the time. I mean, it's amazing the things I think I see and I think I've heard that I haven't heard and I didn't see. And, you know, uh, and, and I'll tell you, just as a lawyer, the world's full of blind spots. You get you get three witnesses in one room. You'll get six different opinions. Somebody didn't see it right. We're human. We're frail. We're we're we're, you know. We, we, are, we, are, we, need, we need each other. I was teaching Bible interpretation one day, and I said something I'd never said before, and I found out later this is historical truth. This is what the church has always believed. I said, talking about different 
uh, tools and rules for Bible interpretation. And I said, you know, the church of Jesus Christ is a tool of Bible interpretation. I thought, that's right. There's a thing called the rule of faith. Those things that, I forget who it was, one of the ancient, Vincent of Larens. He's way, way, way back in the early, like 300 or something. He, he, he talked about the things that we have all believed in all places for all time. In other words, he's talking about orthodox truth. He's talking about the mainstream of biblical truth that the church has always held to. And so this is why Paul wants to check up on his preaching, to make sure he doesn't run in vain. But he's preaching from Old Testament scriptures. And I don't know about you, but I would have had a really hard time preaching about uh, the resurrection and uh, the sufferings of Christ from all the scriptures. I could cherry pick a few, but I, I didn't know that we could, we could see beyond that. There are psalms that, I mean, there's, there's, I'm going to preach on a psalm tomorrow. I know I'm not going to give it away. I won't give it away, but I'll just tell you. I'll just tell you, there's things in the Psalms, you look at those and you wonder, how could you possibly preach Christ from, from that? The most gruesome story in the Bible is from Judges 19. About the Levite and his concubine. It's gruesome. If you were making up the Bible, you'd never put that story in the Bible. It's just gruesome. And uh, I like to ask my students, you know, uh, here's this, this Levite, his concubine is unfaithful to him. She runs away. He comes after her. Uh, but, you know, they're attacked in this town. What was the town? I forget. Anyway. And, and she's brutalized. He pushes her out there to, to these men that want to abuse her. And he pushes her out there. She dies. And then later dismembers her and cuts her up and sends her to the other 12 tribes of Israel, because it was the tribe of Benjamin that did this. Oh, how do you preach Christ from that? The answers are very interesting. I was in a place not long ago where the hero, they said the hero of the story. Now, I just right away villainized that Levite. But they made him the hero. Some people want to say that the concubine is Jesus, or the Levite is Jesus, or the old man that invites them to stay with him is God the Father, and things like that. That's called allegorizing. That's called fiction. That's not, that's not preaching Christ from all of the Bible. That's called making up things that aren't there. Okay? Uh, maybe we can... We can but let me, let me just tell you, how would you preach Christ from that story? How could you possibly preach Christ from that? Well, one way is not that you have to find Christ in the text, but ask yourself, how does this text relate to Christ? You won't find Christ in every text, but you can always ask, how does this text relate to Christ? And if you think about it long enough, pretty soon Ephesians chapter 5 is staring you in the face. And uh, the contrast between the picture that Paul paints of marriage in Ephesians 5, remember that, husbands, love your wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How did Christ love the church? Selflessly. Who did he save? He saved her. Who did he sacrifice? He sacrificed himself. You look at the Levite. Who did he save? He saved himself. Who did he sacrifice? He sacrificed her. He sacrificed her to save his own skin. When my students said, well, you know, she was unfaithful. He went after her. He was a loving man. He went after her. I said, there might have been a reason she left him. If you look how he treated her later, to get a clue, you know, 
when, when the men of the city gather around and, and you know, they, they want to abuse the men in the, in the home and, and the men push this poor gal out. So what kind of a husband was he anyway? But you see the contrast there. And, and here's, the, here's the real issue that brings you right back to the cross. As the, Nathan, the prophet Nathan said to David, he said, you are the man. Remember? And uh, what I like to say to the students, the, 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 the big uh, light bulb moment in this is you are the Levite. Because in our carnal nature, we are selfish. We are self-centered. All husbands are. Uh, our natural tendency of the old Adam is to save ourselves, put ourselves first, put our wives second. Now, some, you know, we grow, uh, we mature, we may become more loving, but the, the natural man is turned in on himself. I like what one uh, professor said. He said, your flesh is as bad as the flesh of the vilest sinner. And something Brother Hagen said, he said, your flesh never gets saved. It never improves. I thought it would when I first got saved. I thought in a couple of years, I'm not going to have flesh. I'm going to be so spiritual. I'm going to work so hard at this that my flesh is going to evaporate and I won't ever have to deal with it again. And two years came and went and it seemed to me, I wasn't sure, but it seemed to me, if anything, my flesh was worse. So I thought, well, maybe this takes five years to get rid of the flesh. And five years came and went, and, and I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. This thing's growing fangs and hair, and uh, maybe it takes 20 years. And I'll tell you what, I've, I've given up trying to revise, trying to reform that guy. Like, like Martin Luther said, he said he wanted to drown the old Adam in the waters of baptism, but he said, that donkey is a good swimmer. <laughs> he used a more colorful word. Um, yeah, listen, if, if you don't think your flesh uh, is absolutely rotten and carnal, you just don't know yourself very well. And the lesson of that story, Judges 19, to preach Christ from that is you are that man. That's the way you are without Christ, apart from Christ. As I said the other day, the, 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 you know, I thought as I got more spiritual, I'm still waiting for that, that I would need the grace of God less. And, and, and what you find out is, oh, how, how much you need the grace of God, how badly you need the grace of God, how you're utterly dependent upon that grace. And so the, the preaching the cross from Judges 19 is, you are that man. But now, look what Jesus did for you, because you love your wife as Christ loved the church. We were all Rahab. We were all the harlot. We, we were all that person that, that God has saved over. You see this over and over in the Bible. God saves the, the woman at the well. She said five husbands. God saves Rahab. God, God saves Bathsheba. Uh, Ruth's background is a colorful background. She's a Moabitess. Uh, that Nation came into being through incest. And they're, they're purposely in the genealogy of Jesus to show us there's hope. There's hope and help for people on this rebel colony. So in Judges 19, we don't just stop and say, you are that man, you creep. You know, you're selfish. But if you can recognize that you have the same inbred tendencies, then you can think about, well, what did Jesus do about it? Well, 
Christ died for the ungodly, and we qualify. Amen? Amen? That's what he did for us. Not to condemn us, but he died for people like us. And that's what separates the wheat from the chaff. That's what separates us from our sin, is seeing this incomprehensible love that moved Jesus to die for unworthy, undeserving sinners like us. And when that sinks into you, it, it sets you free. It's, it severs the relationship between you and the sin, which is what justification is all about. Acts 26, Paul said, uh, uh, Acts 28, 23, he expounded from morning to evening to those that came to him, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets, and, and so on and so forth. Let me go on to something else. I think we've established that, that this is what Paul did. Paul preached Christ. This is, and, and he learned it from Jesus. And Philip learned it from Jesus. That's where they got the idea. They just went out and did what Jesus was doing. One thing that Paul did in the book of Romans, when he's writing Romans, he, had, he didn't know that church. He didn't found that church. And he was introducing himself. The, the, the book of Romans is probably the, the, the most complete display of Paul's uh, understanding of the Word of God, of his theology. And he's acquainting the Romans with his understanding of the gospel. And he's establishing in the first few chapters that um, the foundation for the gospel. And so he talks about the gospels, the power of God into salvation in Romans 1.16, because, in verse 17, it reveals the righteousness of God. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto all those who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and the power of the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. But very interestingly, just after verse 17 comes verse 18, obviously, and um, right after he talks about the revelation of the righteousness of God, Paul starts talking about, he says, for the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of man has been revealed from heaven. So he's, he is juxtaposing the righteousness of God with the unrighteousness of man. And it's a dual revelation. And for almost three chapters, Paul goes, I call it a prosecutorial rant. It's a tirade. He's going for a conviction against the human race. And uh, when you start reading that, you read about you know, the, the heathen and the terrible things they're doing, you're thinking, they're just, these are bad people. And then he gets on to the next group of people and think, well, they're messed up too. And then he gets over to, to Romans chapter 3, and I was sharing this, I guess, last night. I, I remember when the day came that I, I was looking at Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. It says, as it's written, he says in verse 9, are Jews any better off? No, not at all. And that was one of his points in writing to the Roman church. He wanted them to know that the Jews don't have a special access to God that you don't have now. This gospel is for both Jew and Gentile. And uh, he says, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
uh, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. And suddenly it dawned on me one day, he's talking about me. And I had always thought I was a nice sinner. I, I, you know, I, I seriously didn't really feel like Jesus had to save me as much as he had to save everyone else, or at least other people. I thought maybe, you know, he had to save me 25 percent. And because uh, I grew up in church and, you know, I had lit candles and I rang the bells and things like this. And I thought, I'm, you know, I'm basically a nice sinner. And I'm reading this. And I, I felt like Luke Skywalker when he found out that Darth Vader was really his father. You remember his reaction? He said, no! And I, I thought, that's amazing. That's talking about me. I'm not a nice sinner. There are none. I mean, you can be nice outwardly, but if you're not a child of God, if you're not born of the Spirit of God, we have no righteousness to present to God. And so Paul's telling this, he's telling this, it goes on to say, you know, he's saying this so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is in their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And on and on. It's an inglorious picture of us. And Paul says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And so God is using the law to show us what we're really like. Now, Paul does not do this to give us a sin consciousness. He's writing this to Christians. He wrote this, this to those who are called to be saints at Rome. He's writing it to Christians. And Paul's the one, by the way, who told us that we're new creatures in Christ, that old things have passed away, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So he's not writing this to condemn us, but he is writing it to tell us like it is. This is true of every human being on the planet. And he's writing this not to give us a consciousness of sin, but a consciousness of redemption. So that we know what we've been redeemed from. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of the last century, said this. He said, if someone pays a debt for you, you don't know how grateful to be unless you know the magnitude of the debt. So if, you know, I stay at your house, say I'm, I'm Warren Buffett and you need me to house sit and you come home a month later from your vacation and I say, oh, by the way, the bill collector came. He did? Yeah, but don't worry about it. I took care of it. You did? Yeah. W what was it? Oh, it was 25 cents postage due. You know, <laughs> you're probably thinking, the last of the big spenders. Thank you, you know. <laughs> Wow, really appreciate that. Sure you don't want me to pay you back? No, no, no. But let's say, you know, you just bought a new house and, and uh, you owe a few hundred thousand dollars on it, which is pocket change to Warren Buffett. And he says, the, you know, what you were going, the bill collector came. You say, did? Yeah. Uh, what was it? Oh, they called your note. There's a clause in that mortgage. And it was due. 
<laughs> my mortgage, yeah, $500,000 mortgage is due. But don't worry about it. I paid it. And it's nothing. In fact, that money's costing me money. It's costing me taxes. So I was glad to pay that for you. Well, you'd be a whole lot more grateful, wouldn't you? And what this does is it takes a revelation to understand righteousness, and it takes a revelation to understand unrighteousness. Because the whole human race is deceived into thinking that we're basically good people. When in fact, the Bible, the picture the Bible paints is we're basically bad people. That doesn't mean we can't compose beautiful symphonies or paint brilliant paintings or to construct buildings and figure out cures for medicine because there is a common grace that God gives to the human race to, to, in his mercy to help us. But, but the reason we have such a low estimation of our, of our own unrighteousness and our unsaved condition is that we've never gone to heaven. We've never been in the throne room. We've never stood before Almighty God in all his holiness. Because if we were, we'd be vaporized. We, we would, we, you know, just when people see angels, they have a meltdown. And, and they just have a small fraction of God's holiness. The, the, in the book of Isaiah, it describes his holiness with three words, which in Hebrew is the most emphatic form. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. And as far as I know, it's the only place in the Old Testament, there might be another, where the word in Hebrew is repeated three times. You'll see the word shalom, thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. That's really shalom, shalom. That's, that's a magnified peace. But when the Bible talks about holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that is... A, an infinitely surpassing holiness. And so we may think, well, I did a good thing or I had a good thought. We, we, we just have no understanding of who God is and who we sinned against. And, and so the revelation of the righteousness of God that Paul's writing here about, he says this righteousness of God, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. He's not just talking about the gift of righteousness is imputed to you when you put your faith in Christ. He's talking about how an infinitely holy God can take these sinners on this rebel colony and make them right with him and be just and holy at the same time. And the reason he says, for the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of man has been revealed from heaven is that only when Jesus came could both righteousness and unrighteousness be fully revealed. Because when Jesus died on the cross, that's when the dam broke. That's when the wrath of God was poured out, unmitigated wrath against the unrighteousness of of men, and it was poured out upon the righteous Lamb of God. So God, the gospel is a revelation of that. What happens though in Christianity is many times we're working to achieve that righteousness when Christ achieved it for us. And many times, unfortunately, when we when we preach, many times we can over and over tell people, you know, try harder, do more. Uh, 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 and so on. And of course, we want to exhort people to be holy. We ought to. The Bible does, exhorts us to be holy. 
But the lesson of the book of Galatians was not, now that you're saved, do your best. It's, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? If our exhortation does not bring people back to the cross, that divine exchange, then our exhortations are in vain. And we're encouraging legalism. We're encouraging people to save themselves. You know, uh, probably somebody has preached um, uh, good sermons on this topic. You know, these, 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 these buzzwords, these phrases come through the culture and they just, they go worldwide. Uh, and they're clever. They go worldwide because they're clever. There's, there's something interesting about it. And there's also truth in it. And let me be clear. Let me be very clear. I think that people probably very, very likely have preached sermons along this line that have been thoroughly biblical. But I'll tell you why I have a problem with it in just a minute. It's, it's about becoming a better you. Now, I don't know where these catchphrases come from. I think a lot of times they come from marketing people, you know, and it goes, it goes viral. So I just did a quick search and I found, I found seven articles on becoming a better you. Here's one. Six steps to becoming the superhero version of yourself. Here's another one. Seven steps. You don't like six steps? You want seven? Seven steps to being a better you in seven days. Uh, here's one. One simple way. No, 11 simple ways to become a better person. Here's 12 steps to create a better life. Here's one, how to be a better you in 14 steps or less. Here's one, 15 ways to become a better person. Are you getting tired? How about 15 steps to a better you? Here's the problem I have. You could make a scriptural uh, uh, lesson out of that. I, I think you could, and I, I don't mean to mock that. I think people probably have and could, and, and, and we do want to improve. Hey, if you want to learn to play the violin, do it. Uh, if you want to lose weight or get in shape or, you know, use mouthwash or deodorant, that's all make you a better you, okay? But the fundamental problem with it is that God is not looking to make you a better you. He's looking to make you a dead you. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> dead. And, 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 and a, a resurrected you. That, that's why, uh, you know, Luther spoke about the law. He said that, that God, you know, there are scriptures that say this. I've got them in my notes. I'm not going to take time to look it up. I think it's Hosea. And then in Samuel, the Lord kills and makes alive. Where does that fit in our theology? He kills, he wounds, and he heals. And what Luther said is, God speaks two words, law and gospel. The gospel is, I forgive you. The law is, you cannot do it in your own strength. And the result of that is that we walk in the spirit so that we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's not lawlessness. That's not the grace of God. The litmus test of the grace of God is it teaches us to live godly lives. It enables us to live godly lives, and it gives us dominion over sin. Any, any, any application that produces licentiousness or tells, 
gives people the idea that it doesn't matter what they do is not the grace of God. It's so, so easy to see that. But what, what, what God did with the law, he used it as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And this was Luther's message is it's designed to bring you to despair. For you to see God's high and holy standard of perfection. And there's no way you cannot uh, work out and eventually jump to the moon. You'll never make it. But Jesus made the jump. And he made it. And you were, you were crucified with him. You were buried with him. And you were raised together with him. We are in Christ. So when we are exhorting, yeah, if we just tell people, be better, do more, try harder, it's like telling a drowning man, swim. 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 You're going to drown. Swim harder. Paddle, you idiot. Swim. It's like, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm paddling hard and getting nowhere. It's the cross. The cross is the power of God unto salvation. It is the wisdom of God. Who would have thought of it? No one would make that up. One preacher said, you know, about Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, no one would make that up. Always in all the fictional stories, the hero dies with heroic words on his lips. And our hero, our superhero, is dying with words of utter abject rejection and forsakenness. Because he's was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. That's a revelation of the righteousness of God. He was rejected so we could be received. He was cursed so we could be blessed. He was forgotten among the dead so we could be remembered. That is the cross. That is the gospel. That is a revelation of the righteousness of God that Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. I came and I fulfilled them for you on the cross. And when we receive Christ, we are counted his righteousness. God revealed the unrighteousness of man when he poured out his wrath upon Jesus. He showed us this is what we deserved. This is what we had coming. We were not nice sinners. We were not cute and lovable like your grandchildren. We were anything but. We were, remember, do you remember the uh, Uncola commercial? 7-Up, the Uncola. This is a test. Tells us who's more than 40 years old. Uh, and they called 7-Up the Uncola. It's the exact opposite of cola. We were ungodly. I, I don't know about you, but that's a revelation to me. I'm going to repeat it again. I thought I was just, just a great guy. Because I was nice. Nice is a religion in the United States. Do you know that? Other countries don't use that word like we do. He's so nice. He's nice. He's murdered 10 people, but he's a nice, he's a nice guy. You know? He's the head of a drug cartel, but he's really nice. He was my neighbor for 30 years, and he was so sweet. Well, maybe he was. But... He wasn't the righteousness of God in Christ. No one gets that by their own effort. And, and so I, I will just relate my own story in my own shock. 
I was set free. Because it's wonderful to know you were this villain, this criminal, this, this ungodly mess. Listen, if you doubt this, you know uh, hell is a measure of our wickedness. Do you believe in hell? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And, 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 and that was me. I was in that place. Was God having a bad day when he thought about hell? Was he just got lost his temper and came up with hell? I know it was made for the devil and his angels, but that's, that's where the unsaved go. Is he unjust? No. And, and, and I know. You don't, I, I don't have to ask you. I know you have a t trouble getting your head around that. It's like, isn't that extreme to be, you know, eternal torment? No, it's just. That's a measure of what we deserve. The fact that God had to send Christ to die in your place is a measure of our wickedness. He didn't send an angel. He couldn't just send a bunny rabbit, a nice bunny rabbit, a little white bunny rabbit. No. It took nothing less than the eternal, spotless Son of God to save me. You know, if you have a bad, bad situation in, in war, you'll get probably Delta Force and Green Berets and the Navy SEALs, and you'll call out the Navy, the Air Force, what is it, you know, Broken Arrow, and rescue our guys. I mean, that's a dire situation. Ours was worse. We had to call in Jesus. And then lastly, the Roman cross is a measure of our condition. It was probably the, the most excruciating form of torture ever devised. That was my cross. So does Paul do this to make us feel bad? No, but to liberate us, to understand the wrath of God against the unrighteous man has been revealed. I want you to know this is why God went to the extreme to send his son to save you. To die, to die on the cross for you. And this is why Paul preaches Christ. But, but here's the thing. The love of God is cross-shaped. Here is love, 1 John 4.10 says. And I'm going to close with this. Here is love. Oh, it's only 8.15, but I should close. Here is love. Not that we loved God. Little correction there. Here is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us. Question, how? He tells us. By sending his son to be the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here, here is love, God says. Not what you think is love. It's not candy and flowers, diamonds. Here is love. Not that you loved God, but that God loved you and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins. God's love is cross-shaped. God's forgiveness is God's love language with the human race. And that is the thing that undermines, digs out sin and severs its relationship from the believer. And this is why the, the fathers of the church and the, the, the reformers, they said, Luther and, and Calvin, they said, they said uh, justification is the article on which the church rises or falls. That's what Luther believed. And Calvin said, it's the hinge on which everything turns. Think about it. Think about it. I can tell you as a lawyer that if you don't have standing, you cannot go to court. 
You, you can't watch an accident and say, wow, that was a big accident. I'm going to bring a lawsuit and make a lot of money. No, you're not. It wasn't your accident. You don't have standing. You can't go to Canada and bring a lawsuit in their courts unless you have standing. You have some legal right to be there. And without justification, without being justified, in which God declares your sins have been totally placed on Jesus for all time. All your sins. Once and for all. Once he makes that declaration, that qualifies us to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. It qualifies us to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. Being justified. Absolutely, utterly forgiven. Without justification, you, you have no standing to pray. You have nothing to pray about. You have no access to the throne of God. Without justification, you have no basis for healing. What, 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 what are you claiming healing for? <laughs> it's the children's bread. You don't have a right to that. What about, what about wisdom or peace or, or the blessings of God? You have no standing at all without justification. It is the pivot point of the whole Bible. This is why the cross and the resurrection, the sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the main theme of the Scripture. And when we're reading the Scriptures, we ought to ask ourselves, how does this text, this passage, relate to Christ? What, what does this tell me about myself? And what does it tell me about Christ? What does this reveal about my need for redemption? And what does it reveal about God's provision of redemption? Because in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, Paul said, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for uh, reproof and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work, which tells you that is the overall purpose of all Scripture is to make you complete. Even though we're born again, children of God, we, we are still like Swiss cheese, and we have areas of our lives where we have lack. You know it, I know it. We all have areas where we're still growing. Paul says the overall context of all Scripture is that it's given to make you complete and to equip you. And so when we look at the Scripture, how does God do this? Through the cross through his redemptive provision. So we can look at the scripture and as we read it, we can ask, what does this reveal about my need for redemption? What does it reveal about God's provision of redemption? I got that, by the way, from, from one of my professors, Brian Chapel, which is how he, he teaches how to preach Christ from all of scripture. And that need for redemption may not just relate to sin, it might be sadness. That's, that's part of this fallen world, part of what we need to be redeemed from. It, it could be depression. It can be addictions. What does this say about my need for redemption? What does it say about God's provision of redemption? What God did is he laid the sins of the world on the Lord Jesus so that we could be justly justified. And that justification not only gives us a basis to believe God for blessing, but it also severs Satan's ability to condemn and hold us in bondage. And so that's why Paul, when he talks about husbands and wives, parents and children, employers, employees, 
he's still preaching the cross because you go to the beginning of Ephesians 5, you start at the end of chapter 4, and you'll see he says, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And he says, be imitators of God as, as God in Christ has loved you, so love others. And then he tells husbands, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, husband, you're part of the church if you're a believer. How did he love you? Was he patient? Did he forgive you over and over? Does he berate you about your mistakes? Does he lose his temper with you? Husband, love your wife. <laughs> 